Alrighty, everyone, this is our last episode of actually substantive content from Constitutional Law 1. We're going to be talking about appointments and removals, and this is going to be the last part of the executive power uh, that we talk about. But there is, again, a bit of legislative power that goes along with this. Let's actually talk about the Constitution, and then we'll uh, move into the, I guess you could say, subheadings, which is going to be the separation of powers and recess appointments. And then we'll briefly mention elections. It's it's kind of a separate topic, but I don't want to do a whole episode on it just because of how brief it is. But appointments and removals. Article 2 of the Constitution uh, provides the president with the power to appoint and remove certain officials. It says... The president shall nominate, and by and with the advice of the, and consent of the Senate, shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States whose appointments are herein otherwise, uh, who, sorry, whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for, and which shall be established by the law. But Congress may by law vest the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper in the president alone, in the courts of the law, or in the heads of departments. Okay, so let's break this apart. Ultimately, what are we saying? There's a difference between principal officers and inferior officers. The president has the ability to appoint principal officers. Those are going to be ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States whose appointments are not here and otherwise provided for. So uh, heads of departments is going to be a good example of that, uh, like the Attorney General. As far as inferior officers, though, Congress has the power to choose who is allowed to appoint inferior officers. Uh, Congress can allow president to appoint inferior officers. It can allow the courts of the law to uh, to appoint inferior officers, or it can allow heads of departments to do so. So we get here in this interesting mix of this separation of powers, and there's a couple of background cases that I want to just briefly mention, and then we'll talk about Morrison versus Olson, which is a good example of how the separation of powers work. As far as these background cases go, we have Myers versus United States. Our big takeaway from this case is that all executive functions are going to remain with the executive executive branch. And this is called the unitary executive theory. Everything executive remains with the executive branch. We're given kind of the flip side of this theory with Humphrey's executor versus United States. And it says for lesser officials... The executive is limited to what extent they may remove these officials. And so this is kind of a backtrack from Myers. So ultimately, we're given the appointment and removal theories with the Constitution. And the question becomes, who is allowed to remove who by whom? And this leads to our case of Marison versus Olson. This was a situation where right after Watergate, uh, the executive branch was needed to be investigated. Unfortunately, the executive branch was 
the ones who appointed those who would be investigating. So you can see that there's this conflict of interest. The executive branch is, investi- is appointing people to investigate the executive branch. So nobody wants to be investigated, right? Let alone president or officials within the executive branch. And so why would they appoint people to investigate themselves when situations such as Watergate have happened? And so this case presented the idea where Congress instituted an independent council, and this independent council would be the one to investigate the executive branch. And it limited how the attorney general was able to remove this independent council. And so it would prevent this idea of this conflict of interest where the executive branch got to fire anyone that they wanted to avoid being investigated. So that's kind of where this whole background kind of comes from. Uh, We have three main takeaways from this. Uh, As far as the text of the Constitution goes, courts do have the authority, if granted by Congress, to establish inferior officers. And the court in this case said that this independent counsel was an inferior officer. And these are going to be individuals who are limited in scope and powers. And thus, the court is saying that the independent counsel in this situation was an appropriate appointment because it was made by a court of an inferior officer, which was authorized by Congress. So that would meet the text of the constitutional merits. The second takeaway is that we're given an undue, uh, sorry, an undue interference test. So what this test says is, is the limitation to remove this official going to interfere with the president's ability to perform their constitutional duties? The majority in this case says, no, the appointment of this official is not going to interfere with constitutional duties because the removal of that individual is not central for the executive branch to function. The dissent disagrees wholeheartedly with the majority approach. They basically say the exact opposite. Uh, first, it says that all power is invested is invested into the executive. Uh, so there's so the provision that I read at the beginning of this. This is Article Two, Section Two, I think, uh, Clause Two, and then Article. Uh, sorry. Article 2, Section 1, I think Clause 1 of the Constitution, says that all powers, all executive powers are vested in the president. And ultimately what that means is that there shouldn't be any limitation on the president, and any limitation at all would unduly interfere with this constitutional provision that the president has complete authority over this issue. So, of course, Watergate is a situation where the courts want to address this conflict of interest. But the assent is saying, even though we want to address this issue, we can't address this issue via by limiting the executive's authority to dismiss this independent counsel. The... Dissent is also arguing, too, that this individual is not an inferior officer because their power was so narrow-focused that they had one goal, 
and they were given extreme power uh, to investigate elected officials and that their power wasn't very limited. Uh, so the dissent is arguing that this person isn't a inferior officer as well. So that's our topic about the separation of powers. Let's go ahead and focus on recess appointments. Uh, the very next clause in the in Constitution that I read earlier, so Article, uh, Article 2, Section 2, Clause 3, says that the president shall have the power to fill up all vacancies that may happen during the recess of the Senate by granting commissions which shall expire at the end of Congress's next session. Okay, so we're given two things here what the president can do, and when and that uh, that power expires, uh, or rather what, whenever that use of that power would expire for that individual. In this instance, the, power, the president can fill vacancies that happen during recess, and that filled is going to expire at the end of Congress's session. Well, there are two different kinds of recesses. There's an inter-session recess. This is the annual recess that happens between Congress sessions. And even though appointments may be made in between annual recesses, which is authorized by the Constitution, there's some issues that people may have with it politically. Our biggest issue with this case, National Labor Relations Board versus Canning, is that there are intra-sessions and so an intercession is when you're taking a recess in the middle of a session. So you've got, uh, let, let's just say, for example, you're in a session from November to December. And then you decide to take a two-week break in between that session. And that would be an example of an intercession. Now, the point here was that there needs to be a sufficient time for these appointments to be made. Uh, when this intercession had occurred in this case, President Obama appointed three individuals to a board, which are being challenged as illegal. And he did so uh, when the Senate was in the middle of a session, uh, in the middle of a recess, but they had to reconvene every three days uh, just to do formalities. So even the, it was really a month-long recess, but they would re-meet every third day, and so there were only two-day recesses in between each meeting. And the court says that this is not a sufficient time for these appointments to take effect. Uh, the problem here is that the Senate still met twice a week, and the majority says that you need to have a 10-day gap. And where they get that 10-day gap was through historical practice, uh, where... Appointments were made no less than 10 days. The dissent in this case is really just frustrated with the 10-day rule. It's ultimately not a fan of following this historical practice when there's no constitutional authority for it. Uh, ultimately, uh, what Scalia is kind of saying, I like this analogy, is even if you were speeding in the past, uh, it doesn't make it right to speed now. And so the dissent saying, it wasn't right then, we've done it, but it's never been challenged. And so it shouldn't make it right now, just based off of historical practice. 
So that's recess appointments. Our takeaway from that case are the definitions of intercession, intercession, what's allowed. Intercession appointments are allowed as long as they have 10-day gaps, and the dissent just disagrees completely with the 10-day rule. Uh, that's the big takeaways from that section. As far as the elections go, we have a case called uh, Shiafalo uh, versus Washington. Uh, this is a good case of unfaithful electors. Um, when we have a new election, uh, we've got the Electoral College, and so the electors are supposed to go with the voice of the people. But there's some times where electors don't go with the voice of the people. They kind of do their own thing. Uh, they want to vote according to what they say. But this would be completely undemocratic because that would be going against what the voice of the people said. And so states in these situations are allowed to uh, impose sanctions and other punishments and cause these electors to make pledges to abide by the voice of the people. And the whole point of this is if you don't, if you let electors do what they want, then this is going to be a slippery slope into one, uh, electing a president not in line with the voice of the people, and two, uh, it could possibly lead to the uh, destruction of the Electoral College. Uh, and it's up to you to decide whether or not the Electoral College is a good thing or not, but ultimately that's the big takeaway of that case. So we've got our big heading of appointments and removals. We talked about the separation of powers, what the president may appoint, uh, those are going to be principal officers, and what Congress may allow three different governing bodies to appoint, whether it's the courts, whether it's heads of departments, or the president, and those are going to be inferior officers. We've talked about the undue in interference test, uh, which is avoiding if it's going to unduly interfere with the president's ability to perform their constitutional duties, then that appointment is going to be unconstitutional. The dissent is pretty much the opposite there, where all power is invested into the executive so they can do what they want as far as those appointments go. And this is an inferior off this is not an inferior officer according to the dissent. We talked about recess appointments, the difference between inter and intercession. And then the dissent there with the 10-day rule, not being a fan of that. And then we talked about uh, Shiafalo versus Washington, which was focusing on uh, electoral disobedience. That's a big takeaway from these cases. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Law Schoolers. Before I let you go, there are four things I want to say. The first thing is if you enjoyed these episodes and if you enjoyed the website, I would invite you to go and join Law Schoolers Pro. And you can do that by going to lawschoolers.com slash join. It's a way for you to support us, but there's also a lot of features there that I think you will enjoy. Second thing is that nearly all of our episodes are unedited. The only ones that aren't are pre-law materials. And the reason for that is so you can actually see the legal material in its raw form as I'm learning it as well. The third thing is that the information contained in these episodes are specifically only for educational purposes. They're not to be used as legal advice. And with that, the fourth thing is if it is used as legal advice, we are not liable. That is, law schoolers is not liable for any legal outcomes. Thank you again for enjoying the show. Have a good one.